I think I've learned to uh, to take myself seriously, um, but not too seriously. You know, so like when I fail, I can laugh really hard at myself for that. But I think before I was so afraid that I would fail that I didn't try. And now I feel like I'm trying and I'm failing at things, but I'm, I, I'm also really laughing at it. And that's fun. It's just changed everything in my life. Every single person has a gift to offer the world. And what does that look like? How can we inspire people to do that? Grab onto that and, and be anchored in that because um, their fulfillment lies in their identity, not in their actions. You can kind of sort of BS everybody else, but it's that kind of thing where you know if you're on it or not. Wake up and clean the slate, and you don't have to believe the lies that people have told you. You're not living that to its potential. It's a waste. Welcome to the Forgotten Art Project. My name is David. And I'm Shara. We are so excited to be here today. Thank you for joining us. So Lydia, where, tell us a little bit more about um, your experience and where you've come from and why you have gotten to this place now where you're going back to school. Okay. I graduated from Idaho State and then moved to Tucson, Arizona to go through a nurse residency program at a level one trauma center that was also a magnet facility, which means that they promote an environment that's healthy for nurses uh, to work. And so I started with three years of med surge tele-intermediate care in a post-surgical, post-trauma, urology, benign gyne, and, and like radiation oncology that kind of a, a setting. Uh, we did abdominal okay. transplants with kidneys and uh, livers. And so that was a really valuable experience. Every time I got bored, they would they would bring in a new patient population. I learned how to be a charge nurse on that floor and did some my beginning work in committees. And then I mm-hmm. went to the trauma neurosurgical ICU, uh, which was an amazing experience. A lot of people think that working in that kind of environment is really depressing, but the coworkers that I had were some of the most inspiring, experienced professionals that I've ever worked with. And working with along them, and then working with the patients who were just inspiring, you know, as they fought to to get better, uh, was amazing. There's just so much potential to for kindness and and inspiration in that environment. It's very cool. I did a lot of work with a progressive mobility in the ICU. Uh, mm-hmm which was with a trauma population at the time, and that was fairly novel. Um, I got some amazing mentorships opportunities with clinical nurse specialists. From there, I taught a little bit of EPIC as they launched the new EHR in the hospital with uh, allied nurse, allied health professionals and nurses. And then I did two years of a trauma program manager job at a level four facility, trying to become a level three facility. But the job ended up being convincing everybody that that was not a good plan because the proximity of that facility to level one, it was just too close. Mm -hmm. Uh, So after that job, I was a little burnt out and I went to work with kids at a a community hospital and (laughs) pediatrics. Like if you're not fun, you absolutely suck. So uh, (laughs) that, that was an amazing job. I love that opportunity. And from there, I realized I missed adults and I started working in the float pool uh, at the community hospital where I work now. Uh, And so I'll do a little bit of everything, which keeps me from getting bored uh, while I'm going to school. I work weekends 
And in my, during my week time, I am studying to be a, a nurse practitioner, um, getting my DN, my doctorate nurse practitioner at University of Arizona, studying acute care adult gerontology. I hope one day to kind of go back and work with those trauma and post-surgical patients. Uh, but I plan on doing a lot of detouring. And yeah. <laughs> I, I can only imagine you are the kind of person that you've said so far that um, you have 20 years of experience in how many actual years? Uh, nine. In nine years. So yeah, you you don't like to get bored. You like to uh, to be stimulated. That's for sure. <laughs> Just a little bit driven, you know. Just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> So with all of your experience, you've, you know, you've already gone to school, you've already established your career, you've already tried a bunch of different things. Um, why go back to school now? Uh, well, it was a, it came a little bit as the answer to an existential crisis. You know, I mean, I didn't turn 40 and buy a car or any of those classic things, but I guess uh, I... I went through a fairly difficult time in my life uh, mentally that made me question who I was and what was important to me. And uh, I think out of, out of that experience, I realized that I needed to develop my voice to have the experiences that I felt like I, I needed to be able to contribute to the world what I felt was the best thing that I could contribute to it in my lifetime. And so, uh, so I decided that in order to actually accomplish that, I needed to go back to school. And so uh, I, I started to get my nurse practitioner, which was really surprising because if you would have asked me in, in when I was getting my bachelor's, what kind of advanced education I wanted, I would have told you anything but a nurse practitioner. Whoa. Uh, How come? How come you did not want to do it originally? Um, nurse practitioners are a fairly newer thing uh, to the provision of care. Uh, it, it was a movement that, that started in the mid part of the 1900s. Uh, so... I felt like if I wanted to be, if I wanted to be a, like a diagnostic provider, that I should have gone to medical school initially. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I, I mean, at the time when I applied to nursing school, the advisor told me, you know, you have the grades to go to medical school, and I was like, well, I don't want to go to medical school. I want to be a nurse. And so, um, for me, it it seemed like a you know, like leaving nursing um, mm. when I first became a nurse. But after, when I was trying to decide how do I accomplish my existential crisis um, goals, that I realized that going back to medical school for me felt like abandoning a whole aspect of who I am. Mm. And so... I realized that for me, the track into being a nurse practitioner was the track for me because it allowed me to come at that perspective of diagnostic and caring for people Mm -hmm. 
incorporating all of the experience and heritage that I had accumulated. Yeah. Cause you're coming at it from what it seems like to me is you're, you're coming at it from a very different perspective. Yeah. From a, I have physically, you know, cause as a nurse, you're touching people, you're touching the patients, you're, you're caring for them physically as well as psychologically, because you're speaking to them in a certain way, you're encouraging them in a certain way, you're asking questions in a certain way. That's just been my observation, you know, speaking with you and other nurses, is it's a very um, firsthand experience with the patient. And so you're now going from having that incredible experience of firsthand over time experience, not that doctors don't, but it's different, right? To, um, to moving into diagnosing. I think the heritage is, is different. I think the way that people, uh, uh, the, the approach is a little bit different. Uh, the approach for the patient or the approach for the medical provider? Um, well, like, so for example, one of the things that I felt like was important as far as my nurse practitioner education was that I wanted to continue to be a nursing leader. And while physicians can be leaders for nurses, they do it from outside the field of nursing. When a nurse practitioner assumes that role, they come at it from within the field of nursing. Mm -hmm. And so it's a little bit different from... I guess, from your perspective, because you've done the work, right? Right. You're like yeah. part of that group already. You're not like an outsider looking in saying, do this. Right. Yeah. You're kind of this middle person that's crossing these two sides of the banks. And that's really where I wanted to be. I wanted to be that bridge. Mm. And so I felt like for that reason, the nurse practitioner role was the right choice for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I th- there's there's a lot of I guess intellectual debate between you know what is the difference philosophically between nursing and medicine and I guess I come at that from a fairly uh, unpopular view maybe it's unpopular I don't know but I nursing classically says that that nursing is has its 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 own profession and that came out of the heritage of Florence Nightingale, she said that that nursing was basically uh, that every caregiver's discipline to, and I'm not using the right words, but their discipline to um, facilitate the environment of care and the provision of care such that the laws of health would move that patient forward in their outcomes to a healthier outcome. And nursing really isn't that today. It's really not it's really not people who are lay people caring for patients or minimally educated people caring for patients. It's it's a it's an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree or even a master's or a doctorate nurse practitioner degree. Um or even a PhD, you know, and so it's it's just not the same thing that it used to be. And so I think that there are there's a lot of merging that is between medicine and nursing. And I think even medicine is not necessarily just about diagnostics anymore, but rather it's about how, the, how do you connect with a patient 
to help move them forward towards achieving better healthcare outcomes. Mm -hmm. I think in the past, maybe we would have attributed that to nursing, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's it's not now. I think both professions really have to own that and they really have to own the teamwork that comes with being a team, which we have to be. And so I think in the years to come, we're going to see a lot more merging between between the two sort of philosophically. And I don't, I don't know. I just think right now there's a lot of challenges with being a nurse practitioner um, legally because of questions about, okay, well, what is the scope of practice? What is the supervision? What is the training? And how do we just make sure that the provisions of care are safe and paid for, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, doctors have the same problems, don't they? They, they have to struggle with insurance and all that kind of stuff. Correct. Um, The establishment for education is a little bit more established for medicine. Yeah. So it sounds like what you're saying is, um, you've either observed and or experienced that this change is happening where it's not just these established roles where you have a doctor come in and he or she has this role and a nurse team comes in and they have this role that now it's becoming more of a completed team effort when a patient is present and they're trying to take the best care for this patient. And so you've observed this, you've observed this change and you've realized that you want to be a part of that change. And the best tools that you can have is if you get your doctorate in um, nursing. And okay, so that's what it sounds like. But um, that wasn't your original intent. That's just something that you kind of come on board to as you've gained all this experience over the last nine years. Correct. My current perspective is that every person should practice to the full extent of their training experience and talent. Mm-hmm. And you and, felt like you were hitting a wall, so to speak, and you wanted to get more tools on board. I felt like I was selling myself short. Mm. Like I wasn't realizing the potential that I had been given. Mm-hmm. And do you think that was because you had some great mentors, you worked with some great team members, Yes, absolutely. Um, my my perspective on what was possible changed mm-hmm. because of the fantastic mentors that I had, and because they opened that view for me, mm-hmm. I realized that I needed to step it up in terms of my own educational background and my own edu- and my own preparation, so that I could help realize better outcomes for the communities that I lived in. You know, I think that's so exciting to hear because you mentioned that you went through this um, kind of existential crisis. And um, to me, it sounds like that crisis, so to speak, that moment of realization and understanding really came about from being encouraged. And your eyes were sort of open through that experience, through your um, going to work and meeting these kinds of situations and wanting to do more, but also because you were being encouraged. Whereas if you had waited another 10 years, over time, you might have figured it out and kind of gotten to this point where you turn 40 and like you said, you're like, oh, I need a new car or whatever. <laughs> to, but, but it's like that, that light bulb went on in your brain perhaps earlier in your life because of some of that encouragement maybe. 
It was a mix of encouragement and just downright heartbreaking, discouraging experiences. Hmm. Right, like so dissatisfaction, us- yeah. yeah. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> um, well, so I had... Um, so when I was working as a trauma program manager the the issue the primary issue that we had was that we realized that the sickest patients were going appropriately to the level 1 trauma center and so what was what was the end effect of my role we were trying to find trauma patients but they were really cryptic to find because they weren't they they didn't they weren't obvious to the clinicians that they met the definition of trauma. Uh, they were primarily patients who uh, like fell down and then ended up with injuries to more than just one extremity. You know, they might get like rib fractures or a spleen fracture or spine fracture or a head bleed or two bone fractures. And so it became a challenge because they weren't labeled as trauma patients. So how how do you how do you find those people? How do you do how do you teach people to approach them to meet these trauma goals if if the clinicians that are at the bedside are not even aware that these people are trauma patients? Hmm. And so it made me start to ask hard questions about how do I figure how do I how do I find these people? How do I track them? And how do I communicate to providers of care that these are the patients that I'm talking about while they're still in house? And was that important to you because you feel like they were being underserved? Uh, because that was that was my job. <laughs> so I had to find... And you just couldn't find them. I couldn't find them. And so... Uh, so... As a result, I had to start asking a lot of really f- interesting questions about how, what, what kinds of care do these patients need? And what kinds of outcomes are these patients having? And what would make a difference in the outcomes of these patients? And I didn't really have a whole lot of support in in asking those questions or in building that system from the provider side. Was there a system in place already that others felt like, hey, we already have this system in place. Why are you detouring? Or was it, it was, just... It was more like, like you're trying to find a problem that isn't there. We're fine. Oh. But they didn't really have the same issues that I was having because they weren't trying to find these patients. And so, and they weren't trying to do the the performance improvement on them. And one of the things that I was realizing is that there was a a certain amount of these cryptic traumas that were, they they ended up, some of them would end up with really severe injuries that like head bleeds and things that would need to be transferred to the level one trauma center for an urgent neurosurgeon evaluation. But it wasn't obvious upon initial triage that these patients were were sick. 
And so how, how as a system can I categorize these patients that are higher risk and have the staff identify that and then escalate the speed of evaluation, like maybe the speed to CAT scan to get those patients identified sooner to get them to the care that they need sooner. And so there was a lot, just like a lot of questioning. And so I ended up having to do, I I mean, I talked to a lot of people about a lot of things. um, And I learned a lot through that experience because I didn't know a lot when I came in. Um, I I knew embarrassingly little when I came in. Uh, But I think the experience, it taught me as a nurse, a lot of times you just, you feel like your role is to call the doctor and have the doctor call all of the shots in Mm. terms of, you know, how do we evaluate patients and who do we transfer and, you know, what kinds of care do they need? Uh, Like you feel like those are questions that doctors should hand down to you or maybe like administrators, you know, typically deal with. But I didn't, like those people didn't have time or inclination to come and answer those questions. So if they were going to get answered, I was going to have to do it. And I think that I reached this struggle of within myself of, can I do this? Should I do this? And once I had actually started doing it, the idea of not doing it felt like failing. Um, selling myself short of my of my own capabilities. Mm. But I realized that I was severely lacking a lot of education to really be able to do those things well. And so that was one of the reasons that I went back to school. Yeah. Interesting. So you, you saw this need mm-hmm. um, or many, many needs perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, you questioned the need. Is this a real need? Why is it here? What can I do about it? What are other people doing about it? Um, yeah. And you found like you weren't finding the answers mm-hmm. or at least not to the satisfaction that you felt it was needed to be answered. Correct. And then you realized that you couldn't stop asking those questions, right. that there was this drive in you to continue to find the answers to the fullest of your satisfaction. And Correct. then you, you realized that you didn't have the answers yourself. You were looking for the answers outside of yourself and you couldn't find them. And then you couldn't find the answers inside of yourself. Correct. And even though you were gaining that experience and that knowledge along the way, it wasn't what you were really looking for. You said, I need more. I need something else. And so even though you burnt out and you went and tried other things, you went into you know, working with kids and then back working with adults, you realized that it wasn't just burnout. It was something different. It wasn't that you were burnt out. It was that maybe you were looking for more. Mm-hmm. And so you finally got to this point where you realized, maybe I should go back to school. Yep. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And one of the things that I want to accomplish in my career is um, the number one mechanism of injury for individuals over the age of 65 is ground level falls. Wow. That's high. Yeah. And uh, there is an incredibly high mortality rate within that population. And it's oftentimes, ironically, 
not viewed as a trauma patient. Um, oh, so somebody falls and you think, oh, they fell and they, you know, have an injury, but you're saying they could have an injury that could be terminal. Well, they end up dying from it sometimes, but they're not necessarily always viewed as a trauma patient. Sometimes they're just an isolated injury orthopedic patient or an isolated mm. injury neurosurgery patient, mm. uh, it, at least in the way that the providers view them. Um, and sometimes even the way that the trauma, like trauma codes would recognize them. And so the, the interesting thing is a lot of these patients have many comorbidities. And so... What does that mean? Uh, it means that they have other other illnesses that make them sick. So they they have uh, maybe they had a cardiovascular uh, disease that contributed to their fall, or a neurological condition that contributed to their fall, mm-hmm. and so they can become very complex patients with orthopedic care, internal medicine care, you know, consulting teams from cardiology, neurology, and so, and, and they, and sometimes they have really poor functional outcomes, you know, they don't really recover from falls. And so I think there's a lot of opportunities specifically from nursing in helping patients avoid decline of functional outcomes and maybe even prolonging their, their, their lives um, so that they don't die. So That's really, I think, one of the focuses of my career that I got out of working at that particular facility and asking those questions. Hmm. Hmm. So how do you bridge the gap then from from your point of view? Like, uh, it's funny that you mentioned that because I'm totally on board with, you know, people falling and getting hurt and older in age. And when I'm coaching, like my, if I have an older uh, client come in like my primary concern is to make sure that they can get up and down off the floor mm-hmm. well because of that fact that you're just saying so how how do you see nursing as you know hoping to maybe prevent some of those things from happening uh, versus just like recognizing when they come in and then now addressing it better um, you know talk, tell me a little bit about that well um, one of the things that's happening, it used to be that reimbursement for medical care was, was based off of like volume and procedures. But what we're seeing is that there's a change now. Um, it's got, a lot of it's called like value-based purchasing, where we're looking at how do we create reimbursement models that improve patient outcomes. And there's a lot of different avenues through that, the accountable care organizations, patient medical homes, et cetera. But it really starts to ask nursing to kind of step up their practice and say, okay, how do we, how do we make a difference in this kind of a patient? And one of the answers to that is by creating transitional care programs from acute care to the community. And that's one of the ideas that I that I am developing. Um, there are several transitional care uh, programs for from acute care to the community aimed at fall risk reduction. Um, and each one of those kind of takes a little bit of a different approach, but uh, it basically starts with identifying the cryptic patient, like I like I was talking about before. Um, mm-hmm. How do you identify a high risk for falls patient? 
And currently, a lot of the care just focuses on, well, let's get them a physical therapy and occupational therapy evaluation. We can get them hooked up with physical therapy in the outpatient setting. Um, sometimes people will actually do medication reviews to, to, to reduce um, medications that can contribute to falling frequency or falling negative outcomes. Sometimes you get that evaluation. But there are other things that you can do like like uh, you know vision evaluations, um, looking at um, you know the roles of nutrition in their lives, looking at the fall risk, you know, like do they have a bunch of rugs or cords running across their house? Can they move through their house with a walker? Um, so a lot of it is is really creating care partnerships where we start to ask these questions. And then also providing families with support for what happens when my loved one starts to decline. You know, who do I talk to about that? And how do we work on getting them into a safer environment? What are their options? You know, that's kind of a, a big thing. Um, so I think I think that's it's it's multifactorial in the hospital. Um, people oftentimes historically have just sort of been put in a bed and they lay there. They get delirious. They get weak. They lose like 7% of their muscle per day that they just lay there. And so uh, I think a lot of it is putting a greater emphasis uh, for nurses on the importance of getting people up out of bed and getting them walking. Yeah, I love that. That's so great. Because I mean, I think a lot of times think of the medical professional world as like sick care versus healthcare, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're already sick and now we're going to take care of them instead of like, how can we prevent all of these things from happening? Like you're talking about, that's really refreshing to hear from, you know, the, the medical side of things. I love it. Yeah. 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 So I have a question, um, in talking about like kind of taking a step back to like the big picture of you, um, first off, like I want to know what made you decide that you wanted to be a nurse, like way back when you decided to go and call it, like, was it when you were a kid or when was it? And then, yeah. So tell me about that. So I had originally decided I entered college as a pharmacy major, actually. And okay. uh, I, in my first semester, I was taking 18 credits and I was going home to visit my parents on the weekend. And I started dating my husband and I was making friends and I was doing everything. And then I got mono. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, mononucleosis, kissing disease. So (laughs) what that disease basically is, most people know, is it makes you excessively tired. It's a virus that that inundates your immune cells. Um, and it causes a lot of inflammation in your body. And it take, it's a DNA virus that actually writes itself into your genetic code. And uh, it, it takes a long time to get over. And so I ended up being febrile through finals week of my last semester. Uh, and then, or I guess my last semester of that year, my freshman year. And then I went home and I slept for like a week. <laughs> and then I got up and I started running around like a chicken with my head cut off again. I went to a wedding. I was a bridesmaid and, you know, you run like crazy like that. And I was actually here in Tucson for that wedding. Uh, 
So I went to the doctor again because my symptoms came back. And then uh, I was told that I might have appendicitis. So my dad was, he drove us all the way back up to Idaho overnight. And I had a bowl of chili when I got home, uh, which for anybody who's ever familiar with (laughs) diagnosis, like that, that was a a flag that I did not have appendicitis. You have a bowl of chili. Um, And then I went to the emergency department where they diagnosed me with mono. Uh, After I left that, that department, I ended up getting sicker, a lot sicker. I, I turned yellow from head to toe. I met my husband's family for the first time, jaundiced. (laughs) And I ended up swelling up pretty big. I was retaining a lot of water. I passed out in the hallway. Um, Oh no. I was really sick. And now I had no idea at the time that I was as sick as I was, but you know, now that I'm doing a lot of reading, I actually had some pretty profound kidney stuff going on that kind of followed me for the next couple of years, actually. Wow. Um, I had no idea at the time, but it, it, it wiped me out so bad that I had to sit on the benches in Walmart as a 19 year old girl for several months after having that illness, because I would just get too tired to walk. Mm. From Walmart. And I also had my wisdom teeth out that summer. And as I was, sitting, you know, my mom put me to bed and, and as I sat down, I ended up throwing up all the, like over all of the fresh stitches and gauze that was in my mouth. Oh, I I was so like drugged up on, um, like conscious sedation med from the, from the surgery that I couldn't even get up to go get my own stuff to like help myself. So I was really dependent on my mom to help me. And I think that those two experiences, because I, I mean, I was sick for a long time. I, I, mono wipes out your immune system when you get it that bad. And so I picked up every single illness under the sun for the next year. I was immunocompromised. So um, going through that experience really taught me that there is a time in people's lives where they get sick and they need other people to help them through it. And so that was really the personal motivation that drove me into nursing more than other things. Um, and so, and as I grew in my understanding of what nursing was, I really, um, I really came to appreciate nurse theorists like Virginia Henderson, who talk about um, the role of nursing in facilitating patients' functional independence and to the greatest extent that that, that they're capable of that. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so yeah, that was kind of my journey. I just, I got sick and realized there's times where people need each other. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. that's a pretty, pretty big catalyst, right? You're like floored. So <clears throat> that's cool. I'm always curious to hear like how, how things start with people. Um, cause obviously it's a lot different than going to, uh, uh, pharmacy school, right? Right. <laughs> it's quite a bit different. Yeah. Um, so then, like over the course of your career, what I what I like about hearing hearing from you is that you have spent all this time exploring all these different avenues. Um, you know, going from this to that and that, and then finally getting to the place where you are now. And I'm just curious, how do you feel like 
you're super busy right now, right? You're incredibly busy. A little bit. A little bit. But I, I'm curious how you feel right now versus how you felt um, in, in the past when you were doing some of these different things where you didn't necessarily feel like you were learning stuff and having great experiences, but didn't have... Like right now, it seems to me that you're saying like you kind of found your niche and your purpose and like where you want to go with nursing. Yeah. Right? And like, I love that you took all this time exploring and figuring out. I think that that's a really big underrated factor where we're just like, I feel like I should have this figured out right now, you know? Like, oh, yeah. This is my passion. This is what I'm going to stick with for the, the rest of my life. And that's really not how life goes most of the time. No. And, and actually one of the things that I, I, I think before part of the thing that was part of my existential crisis was I had this plan and this is the way that my life should look and this is what I should do. And this is how it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that I watched a lot of my mentors get walked to the door um, through, you know, hospital mergers through no fault of their own you know like just like one day you would send them an email and the next day they didn't work there anymore and you didn't even know you didn't even know that that would happen like they couldn't even say send an email saying goodbye you just find out through the grapevine that your boss wasn't your boss anymore yeah and so i i think that one of the things that happened was I exceeded my own conceptualizations of what my life and my work could look like. And now it's just an open adventure. And I think there's a lot of really cool freedom in that. Um, I feel freer than I ever did before. I think before I felt like if I wasn't achieving something, I was failing at it. Mm-hmm. But now, like failure, failure is not really failure. Failure is just an opportunity to learn from it. Yeah. Just asking another question, just talking to that mentor, like figuring out that problem, right? Yeah. yeah and of course, like we we all know this, but it's sometimes hard to recognize that failure is always when we learn the most yeah (laughs) it's not when we're like cruising by on life that we're like wow that was you know i learned so much when i was just coasting through (laughs) and well i think i've learned to uh to take myself seriously um but not too seriously you know so like when i fail yeah i can laugh really hard at myself for that but i think before i was so afraid that i would fail that i didn't try Mm. and now I feel like I'm trying and I'm failing at things, but I'm, I'm also really laughing at it. And that's fun. Yeah. Because it's not like, you're not failing as a person. Right. right. I think like when you are so attached to that plan, like this is the plan, this is the way I'm going to be. If there's any sort of failure and you're clinging so tightly to that, then it feels like you have failed like, right. as a person. So yeah, I really admire that you have explored and like let go and then just have gone with it and now kind of found, you know, a need, like a big need and a niche and like bridging all these gaps between practitioners and doctors and coaches and like all these people, like that's, you know, super important, I think. Mm -hmm. Very cool. 
Yeah, it's really, it's really inspiring, definitely, because I think that a lot of people would say, hey, I've gone to school and I've, you know, started paying off my school loans and I have a job and I have friends or family or whatever. And to stop all of that and to really acknowledge their dissatisfaction, it's just that alone is such a big deal. <laughs> You know, I think so many people would say, you know, this is just work. This is just life. Life is tough and life is struggle sometimes. But I think that your perspective on that was not, oh, this is just life and this is just tough. It was like, no, this is a problem. And this is something that I can solve. This is something I can ask questions of. And um, I think that that kind of turning around of the thought process is just so interesting because not a lot of people understand that they can do that, understand that you have your own freedom of choice in a situation. Even when you have to wake up and you have to go to work, you still have the freedom of choice of how am I going to take this situation and grow from it, encourage others in their own life paths. You know, I think that it's just, it's so interesting to hear that you took all of those different experiences and you really said, what else can I be doing here? You know, I think that you took that personal responsibility very seriously. Um, Yeah, I just think that's interesting. That's so cool. (laughs) A lot of people should really take the time to develop their voices because I think what comes out of it is a very interesting perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Would you say... Like right now, would you say that even though you're super duper busy, you still feel like energized and um, kind of at peace in a way compared to like previous times in your life? Um, I, I I describe my current my current school experience as kind of like getting up every morning and submitting to the waterboarding. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> it seems like a little bit dark, but. Yeah. Um, well, you are a nurse, so you, <laughs> you, you got to be a little bit dark, right? <laughs> but, um, I, you, know, you know, like, as I think there's some mornings where, you know, you come up for air and I don't know, you, you learn to appreciate the fact that your nose is cleared out or something. I mean, the water's warm. I don't know. Um, <laughs> you just... Um, I, I oftentimes will come away with something going, wow, I actually made it through that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, you know, at the beginning of the week, it's like, how was I going to accomplish all of that? And then by the end of the week, you're like, wow, I did. And, yeah. um, and it's exhausting. You know, it, it feels like you just take another breath to go back into the waterboarding. But, mm-hmm. um, but is there a mental difference where now you feel like, you know, before you were like, I'm on this path to nursing. This is what I'm going to do. But now you're like, now I'm on this personal path. I'm on this, this, this thing, this need that, I, you know, what's the, is there any I feel mental like I'm being true to myself. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I, and, and so as much as, you know, it's not that other people are doing this waterboarding to my, to me. Right. It's just hard. Yeah. I, I, I think it, this is something that I'm submitting to myself. And mm-hmm. so it's kind of like yoga. 
you know, where you're, you're sitting there in downward dog and then you have to go into plank and you're sitting there in plank and you're kind of hoping that the yoga instructor is going to stop the plank soon because you're going to hit the floor pretty soon. Mm -hmm. And, um, but you're really in yoga class because you went, you know, nobody pushed you. (laughs) Right. You're there because you wanted to be. You're learning to manage that tension and that relaxation within yourself. And I think that that's a lot of my day-to-day habit right now is really fostering that awareness within myself. You know, where am I at? Am I am I crossing a, a tension, a threshold of tension where I'm starting to fall into a into like a disease process or into a stress response that that's ultimately going to you know affect my overall health? Is it time to rest mm-hmm. or? Or is this is this the kind of tension and muscle fatigue that just builds strength? Mm. And so I think a lot of it is just like this sort of constant checking in, you know, between where you know the tension and the relaxation, and and what exactly is it that I need, um, and being willing to say I need to rest now, mm. in spite of what that means in terms of your schoolwork. Yeah. Life. Yeah. Seeing the long, the long-term game, right? Like, yeah. Obviously, you've been really sick before, and so you know what that's like. Yeah, uh, and I think that that's one of the reasons that I'm being so. I actually started up. Um, go. I joined a gym for the first time in my life uh, this last month, and I've started doing cardio, and I've started doing weight training, and I've started doing yoga. And a lot of those things I'm doing now because I think I have had the experience before of going through nursing school sick. And um, I don't want to do that again. And a lot of nurses do. A lot of the nurse practitioner students that I've talked to have developed acute stress-related illness as a result of the waterboarding, the Mm -hmm. constant waterboarding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I... I mean, <laughs> preaching to the choir here on like <laughs> working out and eating healthy. Um, but it's uh, interesting to me, just like as an aside observation, and maybe you can speak to this a little bit too, but it concerns me with how much, uh, how many nurses I've seen that don't seem to take care of themselves very well. Yeah. As, as a generalization, obviously, like, you know, there are people who are, are doing an amazing job, but. Um, and I just find that as like a ironic, striking thing that like, hey, these are it the people that are caring for us, but they're not caring for themselves. And it is, yeah, yeah. No, it's. It, I mean, it's interesting, and um, why do you think that is? Um. So one of the things that. There's a, there's, a, I guess, a, a certain culture. I think this is probably in medicine and in nursing, where the emphasis is on productivity mm-hmm. and what needs to be done with the patient, and you get more points for being productive, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, you end up in these like massive patient assignments with so much work to do. And you're like, I can't take a break to eat 
or to pee is the classic. Um, no, the for classic. reals. Yeah, I've heard that from nurses. Yeah, and, all the time. That is crazy. And and so, you know, a lot of it. And 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 is that really true? Sometimes, you know, sometimes it really is true. Is it true most of the time? You know, are there times where you could go up to a patient? And you say, I'm going to get your pill, but I need to pee first. So give me, you know, three minutes, you know, and people would probably be like, yeah, no, do that. Like, um, and I think medicine is, is oftentimes the same way. You know, you get people get into seeing patients and doing charts and whatnot. And they're like, and by the time they're done with their day, they're exhausted. A lot of nurses, especially night shift nurses, you know, are trying to maintain their own families as well as work and they don't sleep. And so I think that there's a certain amount of normalizing that's happened as a result of this value of productivity um, and this value of caring. You know, you can say to yourself, well, at least that person, you know, got what they need. And maybe that works okay until you get 20 years down the line. Yeah, for a little while. (laughs) And, you know, you've you've exhausted yourself. Um, Or maybe, you know, you've hit this point of burnout. And I think we're seeing a lot of that. Mm. And so I think some of it is... Some of it is that. Some of it is that it's easier to look at somebody else's health than it is to look at your own and to make changes. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of personal responsibility and even, you know, some psych issues that goes along with that. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I think, I think it's multifactorial, but yeah, it's a big, it's a, it's a thing. It's absolutely a thing. And does it need to change? Yeah, it does. I think that one of the things that I've seen in my own practice is that as I become better at, say maybe even using like my fitness pal to track my diet to bring an awareness to the things that I'm eating. I have a greater understanding of that tool and when it can be used for other patients to potentially help them gain control over their diets. Mm -hmm. So I think when people make a decision to be healthy in the health profession, it does translate into practice and it's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's cool that now you're <clears throat> putting yourself more and more into a position as you know leading people mm-hmm. and bridging the gap, so you'll be able to speak more to that and like have more influence with that, which is which is great. Yeah, and it's very difficult to do because, like you said, you have to take all those steps: personal responsibility and recognition in your own life, um, understanding that you're worth it, that you um, need it. Um, that it's important for yourself, um, taking the time and the effort to do it, especially at first. I mean, there's a lot of work that goes into it. Mm-hmm. Um, having that long-term goal in mind of not just your own personal health, but the um, how it affects your family and your career, you know, like you said, maybe 20 years down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, and so do you think that it's just that it takes a lot of experience to maybe get to that point where you can acknowledge that? Um, or it's just... I don't know. I wonder why some people get to that point and some people don't. Uh, yeah, well, we I don't think we could possibly answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> that was 
more of like an internal question (laughs) that I said out loud. I'm so sorry. (laughs) But it it does, I I can speak to a little bit like the, it it just depends on when you decide to start, right? Yeah. If you, if you. The difference between day one and one day. Exactly. If you decide to start, maybe when you're like 16 versus if you did, when you decide to start when you're like 45, well, man, then, you know, you just have all of this experience and awareness of yourself and learning that takes place. And, you know, it just gets better and better and better and better as you, as you go down the road. And, mm-hmm. and then sometimes when you're, have been down that road for like 10 years, it's really easy to look at somebody who's just starting and be like, well, why can't you just do this? Like, come on. But then we have to recognize like, oh, but it took you 10 years to get to where you're at. Yeah. You know, just, I think. I think uh, one of the things that happened within myself is, you know, like, so I I was getting a little bit fat, you know, not, not much, but a little bit fat. And I looked at my family history and I was like, yeah, well, you know, statistically, I'm probably going to die of heart disease. So bring on the cheeseburger. I didn't care, you know. I yeah. really like cheeseburgers, quality of life, you know. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm like having a flashback. So I, I know Lydia, Lydia and I have known each other for several years now. And I have literally like this flashback of several conversations about like In and Out Burger versus the Whopper or <laughs> going to a fancy restaurant and buying a $12 burger. Like all of these conversations are coming back to mind. Anyway. And so, you know, (laughs) this is a real thing. (laughs) I think one of the things that has happened with me joining the gym is that I've realized it's not necessarily an inevitability that I'm going to get high cholesterol, atherosclerosis, and die of cardiac disease. You know, like I could actually modify some of these risk factors. I could take responsibility for some of these risk factors. Yeah. Now, does that mean that I am going to stop eating cheeseburgers? Uh, you bet your shorts, I'm not. Like, <laughs> but um, that but, was really amazing editing right there. <laughs> that, that is not a typical phrase for you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but um, but I, I, I would say that, you know, perhaps on the day that I eat a cheeseburger, I'm also going to maybe eat a salad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was what personal responsibility looks like in my life. Yeah. Oh, no, I I totally relate to it. Um, Our family has just recently gone through some huge changes as far as our diet is concerned. And uh, it it was an overnight decision that I made for myself. But I realized looking back that I had been making the decision slowly over the past 10 years. And that it was something that slowly for me was kind of coming to this point where I was like, okay, eating this way is nice and it's tasty or it's comforting, but is this really what I need? Is this really what I want? And I was asking myself those questions over a long period of time. And then I finally got to maybe an age or a period of time in my life or um, just recognizing some health concerns in my family. And saying, okay, I've been asking myself these questions. I know that I've subconsciously been making decisions in my own brain. And what are those decisions for myself? Am I saying that, like I said before, when I was asking the 
you know, in my brain question out loud, um, what, what kinds of things am I telling myself? And, um, you know, I think it really connects with what you were saying, Lydia, about having your own voice. I realized I was asking myself these questions. I was answering these questions over this 10 period, you know, this 10 year period. But was I giving a voice to that thought process? And I wasn't, I was internalizing it only. And as an extrovert, that's a big deal to, to keep that whole process just in my brain and not externalize it and vocalize it. For me, that was a big thing. And so I started to say out loud, I want to eat differently. I want to have energy. I want to feel good about myself. I, I need to be healthy. I need to set a good example for my kids. I need to encourage my spouse to eat healthier. Um, I'm the one that cooks most of the time. So I'm the one that needs to take responsibility for it. And I started to say those things out loud. And I realized I've been thinking and feeling these things, but I haven't been giving action to it. And part of it was acknowledging my voice. And so I think that's such a huge point is taking personal responsibility for something, processing it, and then giving it a voice gives you those little steps, which are actually big steps, but gives you those little physical steps that allow you to make that big physical choice, which is, I'm going to join the gym, or I'm going to eat a salad on the day I also eat a giant cheeseburger, or whatever. Well said. And I think the thing that I would add to that is that when you decide not to do those things, you're really going against self-love. Like you're not really loving yourself. You're not really loving people around you, you know? Yes. Take those decisions to acknowledge that voice and to take action to to give that voice... um, Wings is not the right word, but but, um, presence. Power. Presence and power and action in your actual life. that's a huge act of, of love yeah. for yourself and towards the people around you. Yeah. And I would even say that part of that is going back to you talking about your mentors. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that part of that process is being in relationship. You know, do you have a significant other that you can talk to and process? Do you have a best friend? Do you have a parent? Um, do you have a mentor? Um, do you go to church and have a community there? Do you have, um, a mom's group, a dad's group, whatever. Um, but do you have at least one significant relationship, if not a small group of significant relationships where you can bring your voice to and, and process with whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, whether you're, you know, very private or, you know, very open, I think that having relationships is a part of that process um, so that you can process, but also so you can have that affirmation. I think that that's really important. And that's obviously been a part of your journey, Olivia. Yeah. Yeah. One of the interesting things that might... Um, so uh, Machance and, and Huther wrote a um, pathophysiology book. And that book opens with this wonderful phrase that talks about cellular biology and that it, it oh yeah cellular biology it, it basically <laughs> that um when cells stop communicating that that signals disease and death whoa and if you expand that metaphor out to all of life wow 
it's very powerful. I think looking at the way that you're communicating in your relationships and with yourself, um, it really does kind of determine whether you're in a state of disease or a state of cycling towards death. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the nurse humor comes out. <laughs> it's important. That's my point. Yes. Yes, I, I would agree. I would agree talking about it, um, even to yourself, um, even having an out loud conversation to yourself, um, whether you're in your bathroom, getting ready in the morning or you know doing chores around the house or driving around in your car, even if you don't have any other person to talk to, if you can say something out loud to yourself, give voice to what you're thinking and feeling. Um, I am Wonder Woman. I am Wonder Woman. <laughs> exactly. I am Batman. <laughs> you got to say really do I can't favorite. do it low enough. <laughs> don't have the low enough voice. Dang it. Where's your baritone when my, you need it? My Lego Batman. <laughs> oh, oh, man. A whole conversation that I had with my four-year-old son just flashed into my brain. Yeah. <laughs> I'll save that for later. <laughs> Well, yeah, I I think that I'm really thankful for uh, having this conversation today. You know, and part of the part of why we wanted to do to start this podcast was to have more of these conversations and and speak life and try to understand ourselves better and and understand each other and communicate with each other. And mm-hmm. um, so, thank you for you know being a part of this today, Lydia. Absolutely. Thanks for inviting me to be a part of this. This is a very cool journey that you guys are going on. So I'm ecstatic to be a part of it. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, You bet. Is there, is there anything that you would like to kind of wrap up with or, or say to anybody who, who might be, you know, pursuing their passion or not really sure where they're at yet, or just anything along those lines? Uh, I think I would say, Try it. You know, take five minutes and try it. Mm. Um, Move forward. Like, if you're going to give it something, take the next five minutes and just move toward it. And, you know, eventually you get enough five minutes of moving forward and you're not in the stuck place that you were before. Mm. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. And it's amazing what five minutes of quiet time, like, you know, sometimes I think we get so busy in this day and age, there's a lot of things that we can allow to distract us. But if you take five minutes with everything turned off and you just are relaxing and allowing your brain to think about whatever it wants to think about, then yeah, I think that is five minutes of moving forward. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, anything else? <laughs> we could talk today, dude. <laughs> I know, right? I know. I, I'm just so impressed. I really was expecting at least one F-bomb and I was really <laughs> expecting like one really dark humor like story about somebody. So I'm, I'm kind of shocked, you know? I'm like, hey, where's my, where's my big story that I can talk about? <laughs> Nice. I can keep it professional, Shara. <laughs> you have the skills. <laughs> yeah, she's got to do it at work all the time. So exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Lydia. I really appreciate it. 
It's been awesome talking with you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You guys have a great day. You too. Thank you. You too. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for checking out our latest episode. Be sure to check out the show notes for any links and additional info related to this episode. You can find us on the web at theforgottenartproject.com. And we also want to make sure and let you guys know about our Facebook group. Check out our Facebook page and click on the link to our group and we will make sure and add you. It's a great opportunity to continue the conversations that we are having during our interviews and we would love to have you be a part of it. If you have a great story or you know somebody that has a great story that you think would be a great fit for our show, please feel free to use the contact form on our website or email us at theforgottenartstories at gmail.com. We would love to hear about how you are pursuing what makes you alive. If you'd like to support this project, we've created an opportunity for you to do so. You can go to patreon.com forward slash the forgotten art project. And for as little as a cup of coffee or $4 a month, you can help us move this project forward and get some new equipment. Our first goal really is just to get some nicer equipment. You can hear how nice this microphone sounds. We'd like to get a few more of these so that the audio quality sounds fantastic for all of you folks to hear. We are truly honored to get to share your story.